Well, we're going to jump into God's Word today. We have been going through the Gospel of John, and today we come to probably a passage. It's probably the first Bible story you learn as a kid. I mean, if you think back to anything you learned when you were in Sunday school as a child, I think this is what the, one of the first things you learn. It's probably the most famous uh, miracle of Jesus out of all of them. I brought, I brought a couple Bible books, kids' versions. This is the first Bible stories kids' book, um, and it is in here. You can't fit every, everything Jesus did in here, but they managed to put this one in here. And the title they give for it is 5,000 People. In this one here... This is actually a really beautifully illustrated uh, story. It's called The Story for Children uh, by Max Lucado, um, and they managed to include the miracle in here as well. It's called The Never-Ending Picnic. <laughs> so what story are we talking about? The feeding of the 5,000. That's right, the feeding of the 5,000, right? That's a, you learn that as a kid. That's the other thing you know. Oh, that's right, this kid, he brought some loaves of bread, and he brought some fish, and did, Jesus did a miracle And so we're going to come and study it today. And what I thought we'd do is we'd read through the passage just to begin with at the the start. Um, It's going to be in John chapter 6. So turn in your Bibles to John 6. If you need one, we got only one left. (laughs) Only one Bible left to borrow, but that one is a freebie if someone would like to borrow it uh, in the front. In John chapter 6, we'll be looking at the first 15 verses of John uh, today. We'll read through this passage, and then uh, we'll we'll set that up some more, and we'll get into the, the, the teaching on it. So John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says this. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Let me pray. Ask God's blessing on his word today. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, well-known account here today. And Lord, we may be approaching it with somewhat of an attitude of, we've heard this before. And so God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal truth to us and reveal this afresh to us, that you might teach us uh, what you want to teach us today, that our hearts would be ready um, to be impacted by your word. So we pray that you would be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. 
Well, um, over the years, I t- in, in you know, my lifetime, there have been many lessons gleaned from this, this account. I've heard all kinds of applications from this story uh, for people. One of them was, oh, now you can see that the smallest child can bring the largest gift. I've heard it sort of applied this way. Nothing is too small for Jesus to use in caring for his people. Uh, Another one is through Jesus' power, a few loaves and fish can feed a crowd. I've even heard it told about, uh, really portrayed as just simply a lesson on sharing, uh, that all the people brought their own food and ultimately convicted by Jesus' selfless act, brought their food out and began to share. And if we are honest, we do probably come to this account with a little bit of a, uh, we kind of heard this story since I was two. Uh, do I really need to go uh, through this? Let's just skip it and get ahead to the, the meaty stuff at the end of chapter six, you know, the, the bread of uh, heaven stuff. But here's what I want to ask you. Why does John, the author of this gospel, include it here? Why does he include this miracle. If you re- remember, this is going to be the fourth miraculous sign. John has only picked a handful of signs to include in his gospel, right? He's turned water into, into wine. Uh, he's healed, healed a, a nobleman's son. He's, he's um, healed a lame man on the Sabbath. And now here, we're going to have the feeding of the 5,000. And John has been very intentional to include events that, not, that have not already been portrayed in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those have already been written and distributed and read by people in that day. He wasn't looking to recreate uh, another Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He was adding his own eyewitness testimony, giving it a unique um, uh, picture, a unique picture to people. Uh, But other than the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle that you will find in all four Gospels. I would make a note of that. This is the only one. This feeding of the 5,000. So my question again is, why would John include this one? John is going to fast forward into the life and ministry of Jesus um, quite a bit. He's going to skip many uh, notable miracles, uh, many different events, many um, teachings of Jesus to bring us to this point, which is a well-known and well-documented miracle. He's going to skip all these things and take us to, to this point. Why? What, what is its significance? Well, if you recall, John has been doing some sort of a a pattern. He's been following a pattern. In John chapter 5, we have uh, the healing of the man on the Sabbath. And then the rest of, so that's the sign, the rest of the chapter is a lengthy discourse elaborating on the sign's significance, on its meaning. So I think that is really the purpose here. Here in John 6, we're going to see a miracle. And then the rest of the chapter is going to be a lengthy discourse on its meaning. What is the purpose of this? And in John chapter 5, you might recall, um, it provided a basis for him to make a pretty extraordinary claim. He healed a man on the Sabbath. So how did he explain his uh, authority to do so? The Sabbath regulation does not apply to God. Therefore, it does not apply to me. And he begins to claim his equality with God. That's all of John chapter 5. So here in John chapter 6, we're going to get the basis for another pretty big claim, and that is that Jesus is the bread of life. He is everything you need to sustain you in life here on earth and into eternity. So let's look at this. We're going to jump into verse 1, and we'll start to dig into this. These first few verses are really just kind of an introduction. 
But you notice this, that it begins with this phrase, after these things, after these things. Um, that opening phrase, meta tauta, and this is kind of a quiz for the Revelation group, those who are in Revelation. <laughs> people are like, oh no, a quiz. I hate quizzes. <laughs> I'm in school. I don't want to quiz at church. Meta tauta, if you were in the Revelation study, John, who also authored Revelation, uses meta tauta all through Revelation to signify something. A start of something new, a beginning of a new what? Does anyone remember what it was? The beginning of a new, no one remembers, vision, a new vision. So if you think into John, uh, in Revelation chapter 4, uh, John says, after these things, and he starts to talk about the vision in heaven, what were the things that that came after? Well, it was chapters 2 and 3, which were the letters to the churches. If you can think about Revelation, those letters to the churches, and he writes to seven literal churches there on earth. But they also signify the church age, the church age. We live in the church age. That is the time we live in. We are in that age. Jesus is about one thing. He's building his church, and he's going to come back for his church. So we live in the church age. In John chapter 4, he says, now after these things, after what things? After the church age, which is why chapter 4 to 19, you don't see the church anymore in Revelation. They're gone. They don't come back until they come back with Jesus in chapter 19. Now, we're not talking about Revelation today, but I'm trying to show you that that phrase is, is significant for John, and John uses it here to signify something. We are moving ahead to a new period in ministry for Jesus. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So that is significant, uh, a significant thing. We also know that he's moved ahead in time to a, a new period of Jesus' ministry because of a uh, a couple of other things. I'll just point them out to begin with. In verse 4, just skip down to verse 4 real quick. It says, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. The Passover was near. Now, we all know what the Passover is, right? There was a yearly um, uh, festival feast that they would go to in Jerusalem. That would take place in March or April time frame, all right? So that was coming up near. It's March or April, somewhere in there, and that's, that's approaching, in John 5, another feast was approaching, but it was an unnamed feast. Do you recall that? There was a feast coming up, but the author didn't name the feast. And I suggested that it could be one of these feasts. It could be the Passover feast, which, like I just said, is in March or April. It could also be the Feast of Tabernacles, which takes place in September or October. Or it could be the Feast of the Weeks, which is Pentecost, and that could be in May or June. Here's my point. If it was the Feast of Tabernacles back in John chapter 5, which is celebrated in, actually, the Jews just celebrated on September 24th. So that just happened for Jews. Um, if it was the Feast of Tabernacles, then it's been six months, nearly six months time has elapsed till we come to this account. If it is the Feast of Weeks, then it's been nine months that have passed till we come to John chapter 6. If it was the Passover, then nearly a whole year. So my point is a lot of time has elapsed. You've got to get into your brain that in chapter 5 to chapter 6, many, many months have passed, okay? Many, many months. And what has happened in that time? I'm going to give you some of the things that the other Gospels tell you happened during that time, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus will heal a man's paralyzed hand on the Sabbath. He will select his 12 disciples officially. If you think about it, John has not talked a whole lot about his disciples. He had a few follow him at the beginning, but we haven't had his selection of the 12, the famous selecting all of his disciples. That has now happened. He has preached the famous Sermon on the Mount. 
He has healed a centurion's slave, raised a widow's son, and gave sight and speech to a blind and mute demon-possessed man. He has stilled the storm. He has healed a wild man among the tombs and given life to Jairus' dead daughter. He has healed a woman with a 12-year hemorrhage, two blind men, and another demon-possessed man, not to mention all the places where it just simply says, and Jesus healed many. (laughs) So Jesus has been busy. A lot of miracles have taken place over this time period, six months to a year. Another thing is that the 12 disciples have just returned from a preaching mission. Jesus, if you remember, has sent them out two by two, and they are to go out and they are to uh, preach the gospel. And they have just come back and they are in need of rest. And Mark and Luke's accounts of this feeding of the 5,000 place that account at the return of their mission. And I have some verses, and I'll just show it to you. In Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 32, it says this. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. That's during their mission that they were sent out. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. And then you have the account of the feeding of the 5,000. That's Mark's account. In Luke chapter 9, verse 10, And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And then you have the account of the feeding of the 5,000. So Mark tells us they got in a boat. Luke tells us they went to Bethsaida. In addition to those things, this is also happening on the heels of a very tragic event, and it is the death of John the Baptist. In Matthew's account, Matthew tells us this in verses 12 to 13. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And then you have the account of the feeding of the 5,000. So the feeding of the 5,000 is for two purposes here. What's, what's leading into it is that the disciples need rest and Jesus needs rest. He has been busy. He's been doing miracles. He has been doing all kinds of, of different things, and so have his disciples. And so they're in need of rest. And if you see it here in the verse 1, it tells us that they traveled over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, just a note Uh, If you're reading the Old Testament, the Sea of Galilee goes by different names in the Old Testament. So sometimes you see it as the Sea of Chinnereth or the Sea of Chinneroth, those spellings. It's the same sea. It's the Sea of Galilee. But in the New Testament, it's called several things. You might come across it as the Lake of Gennesaret um, or here in the Sea of Tiberias. The reason the Sea of Tiberias is simple because the time that John wrote this gospel, it had been renamed uh, that in honor of Emperor Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius. Um, And where are they exactly? Well, Luke just told us that they are in the city of Bethsaida. So I have a map for you here real quick. Um, If you can see, here is Bethsaida up in the corner. All right. So that's where they are for this account. Here's Tiberius. So uh, Tiberius is named after Emperor Tiberius. This is why the sea kind of took on that other name, the Sea of Tiberius. It's the same place. Capernaum kind of became the uh, center, his center base of his ministry of Galilee. So he has simply just crossed the, this upper section of the lake by boat to get to Bethsaida. Now, 
All of the Gospels contain this account. I mentioned to you that. But John still provides his own independent account by giving us details that you won't find in the others. And this is one of those, crossing the Sea of, of Galilee or, or the Sea of Tiberias. Another one is uh, something else I've pointed out already, that the Passover is approaching, which helps us get the time frame. He's also the only one that tells us the involvement of Philip and Andrew and the fact that there was a lad there that had the five loaves um, that were actually barley. He also is the only one that tells us that uh, Jesus commanded everyone to gather the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So this is, again, an important uh, important story, but John is telling it from his own eyewitness recollection, what he remembers taking place there. So let's jump into the rest of the account. Look at verse 2. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Now, Jesus and his disciples were hoping to find a peaceful time, some seclusion here, and they could not escape the crowds that followed him. Um, even Jesus' use of a boat to escape the crowds didn't work. Because in Mark's gospel, he tells us this, Mark 6, 33. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. So, so they saw him leave, and they said, all right, let's not let him get away. And so you remember that map, as he's crossing, they just ran around the northern shore, and, and there they were waiting for him when he got there. That's a bummer, right? You're just trying to get away. I just want some peace, and you get there, and there they're all waiting for you. Oh, oh great. Um, but why do they follow him? What does this passage tell us? It says, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased or sick. The crowd's motivation is revealed to us here. They uh, don't chase him out of faith. They're not chasing him out of genuine repentance or love for him. They are uh, thrill seekers. They are uh, ones that want to see a sign. In fact, it tells us there's a great multitude here. Now, why is there a great multitude in this somewhat isolated region above the Sea of Galilee? Well, again, I think the approaching Passover provides an answer. Because many pilgrims would be journeying to Jerusalem, which is quite south of there, uh, to go to the, the, the Passover. And so it would be a very, very easy thing for a pilgrim on his way to hear that that Jesus guy was nearby. They would very gladly go out of their way several miles if they could get a glimpse of one of the miracles that he was doing. So I think many of the pilgrims on their way to the Passover are probably amongst this crowd, many having seen some of the miracles, others getting caught up in it and saying, what, what's the crowd? Where are you going? Well, this Jesus is here. We've seen some miracles. I mean, he just healed this person. He did this thing. And so they're jumping in the crowd. A great multitude has come together. At this point in his ministry, everyone wants to see Jesus. Even King Herod, who beheaded John the Baptist, wants to see him. In Luke's account, which is interestingly wedged in between where Jesus sends out the twelve and when they return, we hear this in Luke chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done by him, speaking of Jesus. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. Now this is Herod. Herod knew who he beheaded. Remember, all the people knew that John was a prophet. So 
In, in Herod's mind, he's, he's thinking this, I killed the prophet. So who's the one doing all the signs? Isn't it the prophet that does signs? So if I killed the prophet, who's this guy? I want to see this Jesus guy. So even Herod wants to see Jesus. Interesting. Now look at verse 3. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Remember, he got there, and there's a crowd there. But, but John tells us this, and I love this about John. He still went up on the mountain. There's a crowd of people gathered waiting to hear from him, waiting to see miracles, waiting for him to say something wise. And yet he went up on the mountain and sat with his disciples. Despite that, now he had sent out his disciples uh, two by two with the power over unclean spirits. Remember that? And this is just a glimpse of some of the stuff that they've been doing. Look at Mark chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. So they went out and they preached that people should repent. They cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. And then the disciples returned from all that to find that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And in Mark chapter 6, verses 29 to 31, I gave you some of this, but we'll look at the whole part now. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there are many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So ministry has been busy for the disciples, busy for Jesus. Crowds have been following him. Herod is looking for him. He's grieving for, for John. You know, they need some time away. So they went up on the mountain, and they sat with Jesus. And John's the only one to include this little detail. If you were to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's not included. The synoptics do include facts like the crowd was waiting for him. He was moved with compassion for them. He received them. He taught them. He healed them. But John says, no, we sat with Jesus on the mountain. Now, I'm just going to tell you, for me personally, this has great meaning. Because ministry is, well, I know everyone always jokes that the pastor works one day a week. So you're right. This is my one day a week. Um, and I'll see you all next Sunday. I, I just watch football and eat potato chips the rest of the week. You guys call them crisps here. But that is not the case. If anyone knows what ministry is like, there's always work to be done. You never clock out of ministry. I never, I never punch a time card and say, well, good, I'm, I'm done. My task list never ends. Um, it's never finished. And even when I think I have checked it all off and, and finished everything, and, and even the immediate needs that have come up, guess what? Sunday's still coming. And Sunday always comes. I've been looking for the week where it doesn't. It always comes. I think I'm using the wrong calendar or something. I'm not sure. Sometimes, though, we need to take a break, and we need to sit with Jesus on the mountain. And even if you're not in ministry, do you know that you need to do that? Because life is always there. Busyness is always there. Your work is always there. Husband, wife, kids, school, whatever it is, it's always there. It's always busy. Life is always going. The circumstances are always there. You need to take a break, and you need to sit with Jesus Go up to a mountain. Garth Hill's nice. I don't think Jesus is there. But take the Bible. Spend some time with him. Take that needed break. Verse 3 uh, has a lot for me there. And then verse 4. 
we've already covered. The Passover, the feast of the Jews was, was near. I've really addressed the significance of that detail, but not all of it. I want to address one more. It doesn't have to do with the chronological importance, but it has to do with the theological importance of this. As the pilgrims are traveling and preparing for Passover, what do you think is on their minds? How about this? Christmas is coming. What is on your mind with Christmas is coming? I walked into a store this week. I couldn't believe there was Christmas stuff on the shelf already. It's, it's September. That has to be illegal. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. Um, October, I've given up. Okay, October, I'm going to see. It just happens, I know. But September, Christmas things. But even as you get nearer to Christmas, maybe uh, end of November, certainly in December, what is your mind thinking of as you prepare for Christmas? Christmas. I mean, I know in this room, there's probably a vast array of different things. For some, it may be Christmas movies. For some, it may be Christmas music. For some, it may be the, the tree or the stockings or the Christmas meal. Haley, some of you, some, oh, wait. For some, it may be family, right? That's a, a sweet time of family and building memories. So your mind is thinking about those things. What about the pilgrim traveling to Passover, What is already on their minds? Quite actually different things. Um, They're thinking about blood, sacrifice, lambs, unleavened bread. They're thinking about the Passover and what it meant. Those Jews stuck, enslaved, in bondage to Egypt and the angel of death passing over the homes where only the blood of the lamb had been displayed those Jews were saved. They're thinking about Moses, their hero, who instructed them how to survive the Passover, led them out into the wilderness, out of bondage. That's what their their minds are. They're thinking about these things. And guess what? They're longing for a new Moses who would deliver them from Roman bondage. All of these things set up the significance of the miracle that's about to take place. And I want you to keep all those things in your mind as we begin to, because here in verse 5 is where it really starts. So let's look at it. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, as I said earlier, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, reveal that Jesus was moved with compassion for them. He'd been healing them. He'd been teaching them. And as a result, it was late in the day. In fact, in Matthew uh, chapter 14, verse 15, this is what it says. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Um, Matthew says it was the disciples saying, it's, you know, it's time to get them out of here because they're going to need to eat. And it's kind of deserted out here. But Jesus had another plan. And for some reason, he singles out Philip. Now, why he singles Philip out isn't revealed in the passage here. Um, We know that Philip is from Bethsaida. He's from that area. Um, And so he would know the local resources and where to get food. But so are Andrew and Peter. He could have picked one of them as well. So why does he pick Philip? Well, it could be that Philip was sort of the administrator of the 12, the administrator of the group, that he was the one in charge of uh, sort of arranging meals and taking care of the logistic details for the group. In any case, the next verse tells us the real purpose that Jesus asked Philip. So look at verse 6. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus just asked him that to test him. The Lord's purpose in questioning him 
Philip, and really by extension, the rest of the disciples, was to test them. It had nothing to do with actually buying bread. Jesus never intended to buy any bread. He knew exactly what he would do. He wanted to see if his disciples knew it, if they saw it. And look at verse 7. Did they see it? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Now, 200 denarii is a lot of money. Um, a denarius would have been a, a day's wage. You're looking at about eight months worth of, of wages here for just an average worker. And even if they could find that amount of bread in the region, they wouldn't be able to purchase it. That's a lot of money. They wouldn't be able to buy it. So here's Philip's answer. Philip, if he's the administrator of the group, does some quick calculating. You know, his register is going off. Okay, we would need about 200 denarii worth of, yeah, it's not going to happen. Even if we got that much bread, everyone would only get a little. So what is Jesus testing here? What is the test? You're all very familiar with this passage, but I want to take you to James chapter 1. It says this in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. Philip here is thinking only in the material, isn't he? He is seeing the, the, the people, he's seeing the problem, but he's not focusing on Jesus. He's not thinking of the spiritual. So what's he showing here? He's showing a lack of faith here, lack of faith. James tells us that problems and trials and things like that come to us because it tests our faith, our trust, our reliance upon, depends upon Jesus in the midst of the trial. And many times our eyes are focused on the trial. It's, it's focused, we're focused on the circumstance. We're focused on the people. We're focused on the problem. And guess what? Your, strength, your faith will never be strengthened when you're focused on those issues. A lot of times we say things like, oh yeah, just keep your eyes on Jesus. It's probably a hard advice to give to people because it, how do I do that? How do I keep my eyes on Jesus in the midst of this? Look what I'm going through. How are my eyes on Jesus? What does that mean even? How do you keep your eyes on, on Jesus? You're looking to him for the purpose behind the trial. What are you trying to accomplish through this, God? Show me how I might be more perfect and more complete. Show me what I'm lacking that I might not lack when I come through this. But we're not looking from that perspective. We're focused on the problem and the issues at hand. Then, then we don't grow. His disciples need some growing. They've just been sent out. They've, been, they've had this great successful mission. They've taught. They've healed. They've done all these things. And yet, they still need some growing to do. Philip has failed the test. But he's not the only one. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, verse 9, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Andrew tried to find a human solution as well, right? However, Mark's account reveals that it was actually Jesus who commands the disciples to go find out how much food the crowd had. In Mark chapter 6, verse 38, But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. So here in John, Andrew is apparently reporting the results of that search. 
Or it could be that the search actually took place after Andrew's report just to confirm his findings. But in any event, Andrew's faith is also found lacking, isn't it? Because he responds, but what are they among so many? I mean, there's five loaves, you know, and there's all these men. What are we going to do? None of the disciples responded by affirming the power of Jesus to provide. The power of Jesus to provide. When we are struggling through circumstances and lacking in faith, we really doubt Jesus' ability to provide. You can't get me through this. You, you have no idea what I'm going through here, Jesus. Yeah, he does. And yeah, he can. <laughs> he can provide. He will provide everything you need to get through whatever you're going through. Because he came as a man, right? He humbled himself as a man. He's, he's lived the life. So he can identify with our struggles. He can identify with our weaknesses. He knows where we fall short. He says, I will provide everything you need. And so the disciples just don't realize his ability to do that. This is just far exceeds. This is beyond that. There's, there's crowds here that need fed. How could Jesus possibly handle this? And this is where Jesus takes charge. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000 so he commands the disciples to make the people sit. Mark uh, adds the, the fact that the disciples seated them in groups of 50 and 100. So that was probably easier to count them that way and possibly distribute the food there. So all four Gospels record that there were about 5,000 men present. All four of them tell us that number. But Matthew adds that they were besides women and children. So the 5,000 was not including women and children. So if you allow for a reasonable number of women and children, I've heard some pretty vast numbers. I think you'd have to allow for a reasonable number. There could easily have been, though, between ten to 15,000, something even beyond that. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of mouths to be fed. And John's the only one that adds this little detail I think is inter interesting. Now there was much grass in the place. Two things on that. I think one is it helps uh, us see the, uh, that this actually does take place in March or April, right? It's not scorched from summer. Um, it's not dead from winter. There's green grass, so we've got spring taking place here. And then Mark um, gives us this little detail. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out and saw a great multitude, was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Now Mark kind of puts the idea of the sheep and the shepherd in, in his account. And here there's grass. And Jesus makes them sit upon the grass. So, so for me, I just see that's a sweet moment. Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep, and he, he makes them you know, lie down in the green pastures, right? Again, sit with Jesus on the mountain, and you will have peace during these times. You can lie down in green pastures, even in the midst of difficult situations here. Have the people sit. This is not a problem for Jesus. Verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So how did the miracle actually take place here? Well, the Lord did not just create piles of food all at once. You know, that wasn't just boom, and an explosion of bread, and it's all tumbling down the hill, right? It's everywhere. But here he just tells us that, that he broke the bread, and he would give it to the disciples, and he'd break it and give it to the disciples, and he would break it, and he just kept distributing to the disciples. Yeah, you'd think you'd go through five loaves pretty quick here, but this is what he did. And he would give it to the disciples. And the disciples, in turn, then distributed the food to the groups. And all four accounts record that Jesus used the disciples to distribute the food. Jesus is the provider 
He is the multiplier. He is the one giving it to them. They're the ones taking it to the crowd. And they had as much as they wanted. They were filled. Now, this is way beyond the amount that Philip thought. Remember, he said, you know, that each may have a little. He was concerned about just being able to get a a little taste of bread, even if they spent all the money they had. Here, Jesus fills them till they don't want um, or need anything more. Now, many scholars try to explain away this miracle. I will just tell you that today. Many do. Many read this and say, well, this was just merely a symbolic meal. Jesus had a meal, uh, five loaves, two fish, um, and it was just symbolic here. Um, others say the miracle was the fact that the people shared the food. I, t- I think I mentioned to you uh, that as well. I-, I actually had someone preparing a lesson for children in a Sunday school tell me that's how he was going to teach it. It wasn't the evangelical church, but he said, don't you think it's more about just God- Jesus speaking to the selfishness of the hearts of the people because they wouldn't have traveled around that region without any food. They would have had food on them. There's a lot of problems with that view, especially just seeing what we've seen so far, reading through the facts of what we read. I hope to show you today that we cannot explain away the miracle. They're far from the clear meaning of John's words and the reason, the reason he includes this miracle in his account. It is significant that Jesus wants the disciples to collect the leftovers. There were probably the 12 basketfuls because there were 12 disciples. A lot of people look into the significance of the 12 baskets. Um, You know, it could signify his provision for the 12 tribes. I don't think the number is significant. I think what is significant is that there were leftovers. And here's why. A couple of things. Stay with me on this. One is John is including this miracle for a particular purpose. He had his, his choice of miracles, and he chooses this one. And he has done something that I'll have to point out to you that has alluded to a previous event in Israel's salvation history. And he's done it by verbal connections, words he's chosen to use, and also narrative uh, techniques in, in how he shared the narrative of this. What is the account that John is sort of alluding to? It is Elisha's miraculous feeding that you will find in 2 Kings chapter 4. Now, I want you to go there because I want you to see this. John is doing this purposefully. 2 Kings chapter 4. I want you to see what happens here. In 2 Kings chapter 4, there's just this little account, verses 42 to 44. And this is Elisha, not Elijah. Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 4, 42 to 44. Here is the miracle. Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But a servant said, what should I set this before 100 men? He said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Now that's it. It's just a small, little, short account. And you have 20 loaves of bread for 100 men. So it's not, you know, quite a vast number like we see what we're doing with the 5,000. But still, 20 loaves of bread would be a lot, uh, not a lot to feed 100 people. 
Um, why do I think this is the connection here? Well, here's some of the verbal things that John has done to signify that, okay? Now, John is the only recorder of this event, the uh, feeding of the 5,000, okay, that mentions the fact that a lad had the food. Remember I mentioned that? He's the only one. Everyone else, all the other ones just say they looked and there was five loaves and two fish. He's the only one that says lad, and his use of lad is a Greek word called piderian, piderian, all right? pronounced Piderian, and it's a term for a small boy. But the reason it's significant, it's only used in all of the New Testament here. You read all the New Testament, you will not find that word except here, Piderian, this lad, the boy that has the bread. Guess where else you're going to find it? You're going to find it in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Okay, so because that's written in Hebrew, so the, we had to translate it into Greek. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament of 2 Kings, referring to Elisha's servant. So when you read this and you see the servant, it's lad, Pidarian. It's the same word. And he uses the same word. The servant is the one that has the bread. Here the lad is the one that has the bread. All right? John's also the only author to include the fact that the loaves were actually barley loaves. And as you saw from Elisha's account here, there were 20 loaves of barley bread. So the boy and the barley are specific things that John includes in his account that none of the others do that allude us back to Elisha and the miracle with the servant and the bread. Some of the connections through the narrative um, technique are different as well. Uh, The questions of disbelief that are in the narrative, right? In, In John's account, you have Philip saying 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient that every one of them may have a little. And Andrew's saying, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? But you have Elisha's servant saying, what, shall I set this before 100 men? Right, so the question of disbelief, both accounts have that. The distribution of the food, both accounts have that. And the fact that they all ate with food left to spare, they both have that. Why was there food left to spare according to the account in 2 Kings? Did you see it there? Why was there food left? Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. He said it before them. They ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So because God said they're going to eat and they're going to have some left over, they ate and they had some left over. Simple enough, right? Why they had leftover? God said they would have leftover. God said it. And that's what happened. So you have that account here. Then you have Jesus saying, make sure you go out and collect all what remains so there's nothing that is lost. Now, think about the disciples. They, it's, it's one thing to have distributed that much food. Apparently, we fed 5,000 people or more. This is crazy. And then Jesus says, now go get the remains. Wait, what? <laughs> leftovers? You think there's leftovers too. There's no way. Jesus, leftovers. And then they go out and they come back with 12 baskets full of leftovers. Jesus said there's going to be leftovers, didn't he? According to the word of who? The Lord. So Jesus said, go get the leftovers. And in their minds, they've got to be going, there's not going to be leftovers. But according to the word of the Lord, there's leftovers. Do you see the illusion there? Second Kings, the same thing. And Jesus is trying to make a point here, right? If I say it, Do not doubt. It's going to happen. There's not a problem here. 5,000 people? Why do you think I can't feed 5,000 people? What is the problem here? 
But people look at this account and say, yeah, it wasn't a real miracle. Hmm. Leftovers? How about this? Let me take you even further. Go to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. The Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark chapter 8 in the New Testament there. If you're in John still, just go to the left a couple of books back. Mark chapter 8. This is right after Jesus feeds the 4,000. So if you remember, he feeds the 5,000. Then later on, he feeds 4,000 uh, people as well. In Mark's account, right after the feeding of the 4,000, uh, they're in a boat again. It seems like I always get in a boat after they feed people. Um, and they're departing to the other side. If you're in Mark chapter 8, look at verse 14. This is really fascinating. Now, the disciples had forgotten to take bread, <laughs> and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, this is Jesus speaking, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. <laughs> I just love that. Uh, oh, darn it, it's the bread. Jesus is talking about the bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Interesting. Jesus says to them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? What was the leaven of Herod? What is he talking about? He's talking about not bread. Right? The disciples thought, ah, oh, he's brought up leaven. He's thinking about bread here. He's not talking about the bread. The teaching. The teaching. The, the philosophy behind who Jesus was in the minds of Herod and the Pharisees. In the mind of um, Herod, I've killed the prophet. Who's this guy? Probably just another man. Because I've killed the prophet. I beheaded him. That was John. Everyone knows that. What was the teaching of the Pharisees? I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. What are the Pharisees starting to think about Jesus? And what are they telling all the people? He's a sinner. He's a Sabbath breaker. He's a demon-possessed Samaritan, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the teaching of the Pharisees. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. He's just a sinner. He's just a man. The disciples were missing the full picture of who Jesus was. After two feedings, they completely missed it. And so he says, don't you remember are you hard-hearted? You don't see, you don't hear, and you don't remember. And, and then he tells them to remember two things. How many baskets did you catch, pick up out of the five? How many baskets out of the 4,000? How many? He takes them to those two events. What's he trying to get them to see? They wanted, he wanted them to see the full picture of who he was. Not only was he able to provide for the people, but above and beyond. Not, you cannot explain away this miracle. If you do, Jesus rebukes you like he does the disciples right here. He says, you're hard-hearted. You don't have ears to hear and you don't have eyes to see. And just like his disciples, they were there. They had been ministering with Jesus. They had walked with him. They are, are being taught by him. 
All this is clearly seen by him. He said, you still don't see the full picture of who I am. And you need to think back. What did you see? You picked up leftovers from these things. The disciples completely missed it. But did the crowd miss it? Did the crowd miss it? Look back at verse, uh, verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> well, let's read 12 on, actually. Let's start in verse 12. So when they, fill, they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So there's the 12 baskets. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. If the crowd had merely shared their meal, then why do they want to make him king? That's enough to want to make him king. Amazing. Incredible. He got 5,000 people to decide to share a Big Mac. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Something pretty spectacular had to happen for them to want to make him king. Some thought he was the prophet. Remember the prophet? Moses, their hero, wrote about the prophet to come. No, they didn't miss it. They were reminded of Moses' prophecy. That's why they make reference to it uh, here. They're reminded of the miracle of manna that God miraculously fed his people while they were in the wilderness. And they will bring that up later in the passage. You will see that. Moses fed the people and Moses led them out of bondage. Jesus fed the people. So Jesus, lead us out of bondage. No, they didn't miss it. <laughs> they didn't miss it. They, missed the, they didn't miss the sign, but they, they misunderstood the meaning behind it. They misunderstood the meaning because Jesus would be king, right? He would be king, but the kingdom would be given to Jesus by God, the father and not by the world. That's why later he's going to be standing before Pilate and say, my kingdom is not of the world. It's going to be given to me by my father and not any man. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's true, but he has come as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by the testimony of John the Baptist. Jesus will get a crown, but the crown will come first through the cross. If you think back to Jesus' first recorded miracle here in the Gospel of John, do you remember what it was? He created abundant wine. And here, with this miracle, he provides abundant bread, wine, and bread. Jesus will use those two things to institute a new covenant between God and man. Do you think... This is just a story we can just pass away and toss to the side. A lesson on sharing. It is so much more. So much more. The point here. What's the point? Look at the very end of this. They want to make him king because they saw this amazing miracle. They want a Messiah who will free them from the bondage of Rome. They want to take him by force and make him that. And instead, he departs again to the mountain by himself alone. By himself alone. Jesus withdrew from the crowd because they tried to make him something which he was not. And Jesus will not let you come to him on your own terms. You can't make him something that he's not. 
You can't make this account something that it's not. You can't come to him on your own terms. You can't come and say he's just a good man. You can't come and say he's just a good teacher. He's not a quick fix for all your felt needs. He's not a vending machine or a genie in a bottle. He's none of those things. He's not just there whenever I might need him. Let me just tell you something. You always need Jesus. <laughs> always. I just not might need him. He is the life giver. We saw that in John chapter 5. Here Jesus is being presented as so much more. Just as you always will need bread and sustenance throughout your life, you will see Jesus then be proclaiming himself to be the bread from heaven, just like he was the water that would provide everlasting life. And Jesus does offer that. He does provide that. I think John includes this, this miracle here to show us that whatever Jesus said is, it says is going to come to pass. His word is authoritative. We must respond to it and believe it. It's true. There was leftovers because, by golly, he said there'd be leftovers. So go get it, right? He's able to do much more than you really think. You need to look beyond your circumstances and what's going on in your life. And we do sometimes look at things and go, well, this is too big for Jesus. Or maybe we don't say it that way. But we go, well, yeah, but that's, you know, the spiritual stuff. But this I got to handle because this is a financial thing. Or this is a thing between this person and me. Listen, Jesus can provide all of it. He can. You just have to believe it and trust in him for it. Just as you always need the bread for life, you need Jesus for everything, every day. And we're going to study more of that in the next couple of weeks. Let me pray. God in heaven, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this amazing miracle recorded for us. Lord, I know it's one we just take for granted so often. But I thank you for John and his purpose for including it here as one of the signs to show us that Jesus is not just a man, but he is God, because he can create something from nothing. Lord, I pray for the believers in the room, Lord, who many times are short-sighted when our ears really don't hear and our eyes really don't see and our, hard, our hearts are hardened against you we don't truly see you for who you are, truly rely on you and depend on you and trust in you for everything. God, help us not to compartmentalize our lives. They're not meant to be. There's not the spiritual and the physical and the social and the economical. Lord, you reign over everything. And Lord, forgive us if we're not allowing you to reign in every area of our lives. I thank you for your mercy and compassion, though, God, because you were, while you rebuked the disciples and corrected them, you still love them. So I pray that we would hear the correction today if we fall into that category of unbelief and hard-heartedness, that hear your word, hear your truth, and apply that to our lives. We love you. We thank you for this time. Pray it's been glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen.